If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Pacific Campaign featured some of the most brutal battles of the Second World War. Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima and Okinawa among them. In his new book, Devil Dogs. Saul David tells the story of this campaign via eyewitness accounts of the men of K Company of the 3rd Battalion of the US 5th Marines. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizen, Saul explores the pitiless struggle to wrest back control of the Pacific from the highly motivated soldiers of the Imperial Japanese Army and examines how the men of K Company, largely raw recruits drawn from very different backgrounds, coped with being thrust into one of the cruelest arenas of the conflict. So, so can you start by introducing us to the devil dogs, the, the men who inspired the, the title of your new book? I mean, who were they and why did you use this particular group of soldiers to tell the story of the Pacific War? Well, they're all members of K Company, uh, 3rd Battalion of the 5th Marines. And the 5th Marines were 
very kind of famous from the First World War, so 20 or so years earlier, where they'd got this nickname Devil Dogs. And the interesting thing about the nickname is that it was reported in the American press that this was a compliment from the from the Germans, you know, so so effective was the fighting prowess of these young Marines that the Germans had called them Teufelhunden. Um, which roughly translated comes out as devil dogs. Uh, actually, m- I can't find any documentary evidence that the Germans ever did that. I suspect it was made up by an American journalist. But however they got the name, it didn't re- doesn't really matter because it's stuck. And there's no doubt that they were uh, tremendously effective fighters in the First World War. By the 1930s, the US Navy and the US Marines were really at the forefront of amphibious warfare. Yeah. Uh, and these guys were part of uh, the 1st Marine Division, which which becomes the first unit to take the offensive against the Japanese in the Second World War in August 1942. And I'm sure we'll come to that. But just to say a little bit about the Devil Dogs themselves, I mean, although they were Marines, and you might imagine they all come from the coasts of the US, in actual fact, they come from right across the country. They're recruited from north, south, east, and west. And they were a proper cross-section of society too. So on the one hand, you'd have dirt poor farm boys from West uh, Virginia and Texas. And on the other hand, you'd have sort of wise guys from New York and and people from right across the United States uh, and also all kinds of different social backgrounds. So uh, the yeah. officers on the whole tended to be college boys, but you also got college boys among the enlisted men as well, which makes it particularly interesting when you're trying to get the first-hand accounts because, of course, uh, the view from the enlisted man, in my view, is always the most interesting. Uh, but you also had really quite articulate uh, guys among the devil dogs who were able to write up their stories afterwards, you know, th- those sort of accounts that I've mined for the book. Did you get a sense of what inspired them to fight? What what was driving them to, to, to join the Marines? Well, you find that a lot of them uh, join in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor. So I suppose you could say there's an element of uh, wanting to hit back against the Japanese, get revenge for what they saw as a sneak attack. Of course, it was an unprovoked attack in the sense that yeah. there was no declaration of war, a sudden attack on the US fleet in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And uh, this infuriated the Americans. I, I, the best thing, I, the best way I can compare it to anything recently, of course, Spencer, is, is the 9-11 attacks. This was a yeah. feeling that U.S. territory was under assault and that they wanted to do their bit for their country. Now it was at war. I mean, the interesting thing about Pearl Harbor, of course, is that it immediately provokes a, a, a declaration of war against the Japanese, as it was bound to do. But at the same time, the Germans then declare war on the U.S., you know, in cahoots with the their uh, their Axis allies. So all of a sudden, it brings America into the war, both in Europe and also in the Far East. And so a lot of these guys joined in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, but not all of them. Some of them were drafted later on in 42 uh, and 1943, because of course, as the American armed forces increased in size, they effectively had conscription. So, but I would say the majority of my key characters were volunteers. They 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 wanted to do their bit, and the reason they joined the U.S. Marines is because they felt that they would be into action very quickly. I'm currently writing a book about British airborne forces, and you see exactly the same thing. They're considered to be a, a corps d'élite, and there's a feeling that uh, these type of very aggressive troops will will get to grips with the enemy sooner rather than later, and that's what a lot of these young men wanted to do. And it's another reason that you you chose this unit because it saw so much of the fighting. It was kind of 
I think in the introduction, you say they were the first men in and in some ways the last men out as well. I mean, was that another driving factor for you to choose this this, this group of men? Yes, because, of course, uh, by choosing a company, you, you get a very intimate portrait uh, of a relatively small group of men. I mean, a company's about 200 strong, but I tend to concentrate on some of the key characters, some of them officers, some of them enlisted men or other ranks, as we would say in the UK. Uh, probably eight or 10 men becomes the sort of key figures in the book. But the reason I chose K Company in particular is because, as you say, Spencer, it's there at the start and it's there at the end. So what does that mean? Well, uh, Pearl Harbor takes place in December 1941, and the first action, the first uh, 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 aggressive intent by the U.S. military in the whole of the Second World War, in fact, was to try and recapture the island of Guadalcanal. Yeah. Uh, and the 1st Marine Division is used for this, and K Company of the 3 5th Marines is one of the component parts of the 1st Marine Division. They are going to fight in four campaigns. Uh, they will go from Guadalcanal to New Britain, then on to Peleliu, and then finally, the final biggest, greatest battle of the uh, of the Pacific, and that was for the island of Okinawa, which is the most southerly of, the, of Japan's prefectures. And that, of course, they didn't realize it at the time, but that, of course, would be the last big battle of the Second World War. So they are there literally at the beginning and also at the end. And I felt that yeah. I could tell the whole story of the Pacific through the prism of this very sort of intimate portrait of a company uh, of guys who, of course, not of not all of whom are going to make it out at the uh, at the end of the story. So, you know, the intention, a little bit like Band of Brothers did for the paratroopers, uh, the American paratroopers in Western Europe, uh, the attempt was to follow them uh, and get to know them, basically, so that you are drawn into their experience, their personal experience. You begin to know some of their family members, their girlfriends. And as a result, it's to, an attempt to take the reader as close as possible into what it must have been like for them and their families to go through what was, frankly, uh, Spencer, a pretty horrific ordeal. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you go about doing that? Because, I mean, as you've alluded to there, I guess what really sets your book apart and gives it real immediacy and power is the fact that it's based on and driven along by first-hand testimonies of the men who actually did the fighting. I mean, how much of a challenge was it to access these first-hand accounts? And, and what different sources did you utilise? Well, I was very fortunate, actually, that, uh, as I said at the beginning, a number of these guys were, uh, were and, uh, uh, you know, until the end, end of their lives, very articulate. One yeah. man in particular, I should certainly mention, uh, because he's reasonably well-known to uh, anyone who's followed this, the story of the Pacific War in any detail, and that's Eugene Sledge. Now, he comes into the story, uh, the second half of the story, which is Peleliu and Okinawa. And Eugene Sledge wrote a book called With the Old Breed, which is an extraordinary account, very moving account of his time as a mortarman in K Company of the 35th Marines. But what Sledge also did is write a lot of letters, both to his own family at the time and also to his fellow uh, combat veterans, those who'd survived, uh, that is, after the war. And, and I was able to use that archive, which is in uh, Auburn University in Alabama in the United States, which I visited fortuitously just before lockdown. <laughs> it was very lucky, actually. Yeah. I was able to get all this material before COVID. Um, and that was the main source, I suppose you could say, of the primary material. But a lot of the other guys who served in the unit, um, people like um, Thurman Miller, who was there right at the beginning. So he served at Guadalcanal and then New Britain and also at Peleliu. Uh, and, and another guy called Jim McHenry, both of whom wrote 
excellent um, uh, memoirs many years later. So you're mixing in all these first-hand accounts from the guys who survived. But of course, there are letters and diaries and, and, and official accounts and official records of where the unit was and what it was up to and some sort of patrol report. So you're really mixing in a melange of, yeah. of, of primary first-hand material to try and give you as much as possible the immediacy of what it must have been, been like for these guys. But also, uh, Spence, it was quite ambitious, this book, because I was trying to give the big picture too. So while you have the personal experience of those guys on the ground, you also want to know why they're there and what's happening, uh, frankly, elsewhere in the Pacific War. So there are there is there is a certain amount of material that deals with the decisions taken by generals and admirals and and presidents and prime ministers. So you understand what's going on, and that's not just for the American side, also for the Japanese side too. So it was an ambitious book. It's probably why it's quite long, but there's no doubt that the chief focus, of course, is on these extraordinary individuals. Uh, and as I say, not all of them uh, come through the story. And some of you know they always say the bravest and the best don't survive to the end. And what you notice from those guys who do, Sledge included, is that they really find it very difficult, not only to process what they've gone through, but why they survived and others didn't. Particularly others, you know, I could name one or two of the, how can I put it, the more admired members of the company, like Akak Haldane or Andy Haldane, as he, as he, as he was, who was the skipper of the company. They, uh, and this is obviously a key position, the company commander, you know, the guy they follow, he led by example. He was tough, but he was fair. Uh, he never asked his men to do anything he wasn't prepared to do. He was a model officer, frankly. And some people in the company said he was generally regarded as the finest uh, company uh, commander in the whole of the US Marine Corps, which by the way, by 1944 was was a massive organization. But of course, some people might have seen the Pacific, Haldane is portrayed in the Pacific, because of course, he figures so uh, much in in Sledge's book, and Sledge was used as one of the books for that miniseries, The Pacific on HBO. Now, one of the things that comes through very strongly indeed when reading the book is the sheer brutality of the fighting and, you know, the endless horrors to which these men are confronted. I mean, Eugene Sledge called it a savage, brutal, inhumane, exhausting and dirty business. I mean, there's some, you know, really vivid descriptions of hand-to-hand combat in pelting rain. You've described a severed head bobbing of a marine bobbing up and down in the water Guadalcanal in August 1942, which, you know, is a pretty powerful description even 80 years later. What did such experiences do to these largely raw recruits? I mean, how did they even begin to cope with what they were experiencing? Well, you mentioned Guadalcanal, which, of course, was their first experience of combat. A lot of these guys had never been in action before. And I think to come across the the ruthlessness, which you can use no other word, frankly, for the way yeah. the Japanese were fighting at that time. They had, of course, you know, a, a certain code of honor, Bushido warrior code, which meant that generally speaking, they wouldn't surrender. Uh, and therefore, if they took prisoners, they tended to treat them uh, very badly. I mean, what you really see, Spencer, as you know, having read the book, is that very few prisoners are taken on either side. But the I think the Japanese were, were, were taking it even further than that. They wanted to cow the Americans. They they felt that they were su- spiritually superior to them and that if they realized what a ruthless enemy they were up against, they would simply fold and collapse. What actually happens, as you can imagine, um, in a situation like this is brutality is actually met with brutality. So what these young Marines very quickly learn to do is survive. 
uh, and and by any means possible. And you do get some pretty grim uh, examples of atrocities being committed by the Americans too. Uh, you know, it becomes a kind of terrible tit for tat scenario. But all the time, you've got people like Sledge on the sidelines, as it were, not indulging in some of the worst excesses. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. I mean, they got very used to taking gold teeth out of enemy corpses, and they didn't always do it just to corpses. Occasionally, they would do it, you know, when someone was badly wounded, and they'd still be trying to get their gold teeth out. And it was, you know, Sledge would be looking at this thinking, my fellow man, you know, my mate, uh, you know, is really reaching the depths of depravity, but I hope he can come back from this. I mean, I don't think these Marines were bad people. Well, they they clearly weren't bad people. Uh, they did readapt, uh, although they struggled to readapt to civilian life at the end, but they were taken to a place where they were brutalized and therefore in some senses, they became pretty brutal themselves. Uh, the important message to send, frankly, Spencer, is this is what war can do to people. Uh, and we need to be aware of that. Military historians are you know, sometimes accused of, of glorifying in war. It couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is, if you're honest as a military historian, you, you, you set out the reality of war. Yeah. And that makes certainly us, uh, and I suspect anyone reading our book, very anti-war. Um, but, you know, we're getting into philosophical grounds here because the fact is most countries do need a military force to protect themselves, as we can see in Ukraine at the moment. Um, but we need to be, you know, going back to a war that was launched in my own lifetime, and that's the Iraq war. We need to be absolutely aware of the consequences of war and only launch them, you know, really as a last resort. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And the feeling is that the Japanese are still on the march, frankly, up until and during Guadalcanal. And it's only the Guadalcanal campaign, which includes a number of naval engagements, crucially, of course, that the tide is turned and that, and that from that point on, the Japanese advance is stopped. Australia is saved, which is why when the devil dogs get to Australia after Guadalcanal, they're welcome with open arms because genuinely Australia was under threat. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. And you describe the soldiers as, as, as kind of a brotherhood. They forge this brotherhood, um, you know, in the heat of the fighting. How did that help them survive and adapt and, and, and for those who did get through the war? Well, you realize, of course, when you look at a close-knit bunch like this, uh, particularly in the conditions in which they were fighting, as, as you, we've been discussing. And by the way, it wasn't just the enemy they had to put up with. They also had to put up with you know, the terrain, uh, the really brutal uh, weather conditions, and the fact that so many of them got ill. They often didn't have enough food to eat. They were stranded for at least a month, effectively, on Guadalcanal with not enough supplies, not enough ammunition. So psychologically, uh, uh, physically, uh, and literally in terms of the combat, it was an unbelievably draining experience. And what you realize is the unit, the family, as it becomes, is terribly important. The company, the reason the company is such an interesting uh, group to follow is because, yes, of course, you've got a battalion which is bigger than that and a regiment which is bigger than that, a division. But actually, the unit that they all consider to be home is the company. You've got the skipper, the company commander, and then you've got the various uh, uh, junior officers and NCOs, and then the ordinary guys. And this is home for them. If they ever get separated from the company, they never feel quite right. So to answer your question, they band together in a very tight bonds in an attempt to survive. Now, this can work both ways, in fact, because, of course, if you're taking a lot of casualties and a lot of newcomers are coming in, they're not always accepted immediately into the Brotherhood for the very good reason that they may not survive very long. And what the veterans realize is you don't want to get emotionally attached to people who've just arrived. You don't know them and they could be dead tomorrow. So that can be very tough on the new recruits. But if you're lucky enough to join at a period of R&R when they're, when they're out of the line, then there's a chance to bed yourself in. And Sledge comes in in, in the summer of 1944. Uh, and relatively quickly, because he adapts, he wants to learn. He, you know, he's a college boy, but he's, he's prepared to you know, do all the dirty work that the grunts have to do. He's accepted relatively quickly. And the, re- and the reason we know he's accepted is because he's given a nickname. And because he's called Eugene Sledge, they call him Sledgehammer. And as soon as he gets that nickname, he knows he's been accepted as a member of the Brotherhood. And just to continue one last point about the Brotherhood, it becomes terribly important after the Second World War, not immediately, because at first people just want to forget But as the years go by and they have difficulty, a number of them clearly suffering from the equivalent of PTSD, um, it becomes very important for them to try and process what they've been through. And they can do that by meeting up with their fellow veterans. So that brotherhood really comes into play, not only to survive during the war, when literally they'll lay down uh, their lives for each other, but also after the war, when it it becomes really important when they meet up with these guys, they have the sort of veteran reunions. uh, And you can see that it's a kind of healing process, slowly but surely, uh, which also, uh, I might add, the writing of these books was too. For Eugene Sledge, he wrote that book to somehow come to terms with what he'd been through. Now, of all the episodes you you covered and researched for the book, I mean, which one hit you hardest? What, you know, which which one will stay with you for the for the longest? 
I think the experience on Peleliu. So Peleliu is a relatively little known, certainly to a British audience campaign. It was the third of the four campaigns, as I've already mentioned. It was fought on a very small island. So New Britain was 370 miles long. Uh, Okinawa was 70 miles long. Peleliu was six miles long. So just imagine uh, an island of coral rock with very little cover. It's just six miles long and two miles wide and dug into the center of it in this incredibly sophisticated system of, of uh, uh, caves and trenches and, and artillery positions are 11,000 Japanese soldiers who are literally going to fight to the death as they do. I mean, I think they take about 62 uh, people prisoner at the end of that battle. Everyone else who's defending that island is killed. And so you get this absolute meat grinder of battle in a very small uh, space. The only battle I I would suggest uh, in the whole of the Pacific that is arguably worse than that was Iwo Jima, where you, again, it's a very small island and and again, it's it's, uh, uh, an absolute bloodbath. But Peleliu was like a mini Iwo Jima. It goes on for just a month. And in that space of time, there's sort of something like six or 7,000 marine casualties. And the depths of depravity, frankly, in terms of the brutality of the fighting is really grim. And most of the, I think most of the worst stories um, of the fighting, I mean, they're bad all the way through, come from Peleliu, where it's just such close-in, grinding fighting. The casualties are so high. A, a company of Marines has three platoons. All three platoon com- commanders are killed on Peleliu. Um, it gives you a sense of the level of of, of uh, casualties taken. The company commanders killed on Peleliu. I mean, the, the casualties are absolutely horrific. And it's in the course of that fighting that you get a number of incidents that I really found very difficult to get my head around. And I'll just give you a very quick example, Spencer. Uh, there's a group of K Company out on uh, sort of effectively as a listening post, they've been sent out on patrol. And during the night, they've been told to keep quiet during night in case the Japanese know they're there. Now, one of their number, who's not actually a member of the company, he's a dog handler that's been sent, you know, to support them on this patrol, uh, cracks up basically and starts shouting. He sort of effectively temporarily loses his mind and they're desperate to shut him up. And they try all kinds of means. Uh, They try to knock him out. They try and give him sedatives. None of it works. And they eventually hit him with a shovel just to shut him up. They're so terrified and they kill him. They don't intend to. Uh, it's just one of those awful consequences of the situation they found themselves in. And Sledge is very interesting about this. He, he's there, he witnesses it. And he says, you know, the guy who actually ordered um, one of the soldiers to use the, the, the shovel was, a, was an officer. And he said he did what any of us would have, di- would have done. But of course, he was completely crushed by the experience, the responsibility of having done that. So that's just one little episode among many in Peleliu that, uh, frankly, will turn your stomach. But if you want to know the depths to which some of the fighting uh, uh, plumbed in the Second World War in the Pacific, you need to read the story of Peleliu. As you said said earlier, a lot of people won't have heard of Peleliu. I, I knew very little about it myself. And that kind of leads me on to my next question. And I guess in the UK, people are much more familiar with soldiers' experiences of the fighting in Europe and North Africa than was the case in the Far East. I mean, is, is that also the case in the United States? And, and if so, why? Why, why do you think um, you know, the fighting in Europe gets so much more attention than, than it does in the Far East? 
Well, for us, of course, it was, um, you know, it was much more immediate. It was much more important. Now, the Americans, uh, at least officially, that is, that the, you know, there's a head of government and a chief of staff level, uh, accepted that the Western theatre had to come first. So there was yeah. there was a, a, an expression they used at the time, Germany first, which basically meant strategically you've got to deal with Germany and and, and Japan will take care of itself. Yeah. In reality, uh, most Americans, as I hinted at the beginning of this discussion, actually were much more interested in defeating Germany. Japan than Germany. They didn't really see Germany as a sort of central threat, an existential threat. Uh, and they didn't have that revenge element either. So the fighting in, in the Pacific from the American public's point of view was much more immediate and they paid much more attention. And I think if you were to uh, talk to a history buff, anyone was interested in the Second World War in America, they'd know much more about the Pacific for all of those reasons. Um, in Britain, of course, we, we focus, as you say, Spencer, on, on, on the fighting in Northwest Europe and to a certain extent in Burma. So, you know, Burma was known as the Forgotten Campaign. So there are lots of people who fought in Burma who think, you know, we were just forgot the Forgotten Army, as it were. Um, but you do find many similar experiences in Burma and the fighting as it headed down towards Malaya um, as the Americans were going through in, in the island hopping campaign and the Philippines campaign in the Pacific. They were up against an unbelievably uh, tough foe. And however beastly the Germans behaved, and they behaved, you know, as bad as it can get, of course, in terms of the Holocaust to civilians, um, generally speaking, when they were up against British troops, French troops, Western troops, uh, they weren't as savage. They could be pretty bad. There were atrocities committed by, by um, SS units, as we know. But the level of brutality meted out against ordinary American troops and British troops by the Japanese was unsurpassed in the Second World War. And I think that's what gives the Pacific campaign in particular a, a compulsion, really, frankly, when you're reading about it. But but to answer your question, our focus was really on, on Western Europe for obvious reasons, because that's where, you know, the war mattered for us. Uh, and, and for Americans, it was the Pacific. But to look, look back at this campaign with 80 years of hindsight, it, it may seem that the Allies were always going to win. Were there stages in the campaign in the Pacific War where, you know, everything seemed on the line and the, the war could go the wrong way? I think particularly in 1942, you, you know, we have to be realistic about this. America w w was going to become the world's arsenal. Uh, you know, it was ramping up its industrial production from 1940 onwards in the most astonishing way, actually, because uh, 39-40, it had a relatively small army. And then it creates this absolute monster of, of not only men, but also munitions, in which it's effectively supplying the Brits, the Russians, and also itself. You know, by the end of the Second World War, it has 20 fleet aircraft carriers. But going back to 1942, things were much more in the balance then. Um, there's a battle, famous battle in the middle of 1942, Midway, in which the Americans are outgunned by the Imperial Japanese Navy. And yet, luckily, well, a certain amount of luck, certain amount of clever intelligence, they managed to uh, defeat the Japanese at the Battle of Midway, sinking four uh, Japanese fleet carriers. These are obviously the big carriers that can carry most of the planes uh, for the loss of only one themselves. And this is always considered to be a big turning point in the Pacific, as indeed it was in the naval war. But the Japanese still had an extraordinarily powerful navy even after that. So I think Guadalcanal is actually one of the big turning points of the Second World War. Don't just take my word for it, uh, Spencer. A lot of uh, Pacific historians in America think the same thing too. And the feeling is that the Japanese are still on the march, frankly, up until yeah. and during Guadalcanal. And it's only the Guadal 
Canal campaign, which includes a number of naval engagements, crucially, of course, that the tide is turned and that, and that from that point on, the Japanese advance is stopped. Australia is saved, which is why when the devil dogs get to Australia after Guadalcanal, they're welcome with open arms because genuinely Australia was under threat. You know, we maybe we don't uh, take that threat as seriously with the benefit of hindsight now, but they were getting very close to the, the Japanese to Australia. And frankly, if they got to the shores of, of Australia, there was very little to repel them. So uh, it was a close run thing. And Guadalcanal is the real key moment, I feel. How did the effects of fighting in, in such a brutal campaign over such an ex- extended period of time impact upon these men in the aftermath of the conflict? Well, I think what you see uh, uh, for the survivors is a really difficult situation. Now, you could say they were the lucky ones. And it's very interesting that Sledge goes back and home to his family in Alabama. He lives in Mobile, which is the port in Alabama. His father's a quite a well-to-do doctor. And his father can see he's in a pretty bad way. And he says, look, you know, you've got to realize you're the lucky one. You've got to snap out of it. Of course, it's not as easy as that, um, Spencer. Uh, you, Sledge is undoubtedly suffering both from uh, PTSD, but also survivor's guilt. I think this is a real problem for all of them. The tighter knit the brotherhood, the harder it is for you to get your head around the fact that your great mate, who you shared a foxhole with hasn't come home. Why you? You know what, what? What's so special about you? And in many ways, they they absolutely came to believe that the best people never came home. And of course, the reality. So you may think, well, that's just a sort of psychological effect. But actually, the reality is, people who tend to lead by examples, people who are always at the front of the, uh, you know, of the of the. Uh, attack of the of the patrol are most likely to die the, the bravest do die in war that's just the reality and i think in the back of their heads they probably knew this or they realized this and they felt you know diminished to a certain extent as a result of that and that made it even more difficult for them to to process this but what you what you have slowly but surely uh, as the years go by is a lot of suffering you can see they're suffering from nightmares and, uh, and they're really struggling to to come to terms with with life but as as things go on, they begin to meet up again as veterans, and slowly but surely, they begin to talk through what they went through. And actually, the writing of Sledge's book is a really key moment. It gets published in the early 1980s, and and letter after letter comes into him in which they say, we you know, we we cannot believe that you were able to put in words what we went through. And it makes, so it's a real healing process, not just for him, but also for them. So I would say by the 1980s, 1990s, and of course, they're getting towards the ends of their lives then, uh, this is an opportunity for them to put it really behind them. But you can see it's an awful long time. And we must never forget that this is what war uh, does to the people at the forefront of the fighting. And finally, Saul, if there's one thing you learned about the Pacific War during your research uh, for this book that most surprised you, that most grabbed you, what would that be? Well, I, I was amazed by two things, actually. I mean, one we've already touched on, which is how bad it got. I mean, you know, I've read accounts of, of uh, <laughs> fighting on the Eastern Front. I've read accounts of medieval warfare. You know, can you really get to the stage where you're not taking any prisoners? You're literally gathering body parts as souvenirs. Uh, you know, there's one stage where one of the one of the uh, dead Japanese has had his hand cut off by a marine who shows it proudly to Eugene Sledge. You know, as if he as if he's going to admire it and think, why haven't I got one of those? You know, so so those depths shocked me on the one hand, but on the other hand, and this 
gives me some hope for human nature. It was the willingness not only to put up with the hardships and the horrors of the fighting among among these ordinary Marines, but also the love they had for each other. So you had hatred on the one hand, but you also had intense love, fellowship, uh, and a willingness to you know to lay down their lives for each other. You know, a, an unselfishness maybe is a, a is a one way of putting it, Spencer. That you do sometimes see among combat combat soldiers. They were as close to each other as they were to their families. And that that sort of bond is really quite remarkable too. So uh, a little bit of both. And and uh, so while I was appalled at some of the material I was reading, I was also uplifted by other bits. That was Saul David. Devil Dogs is out now, published by William Collins. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt. 